Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast, the podcast where we talk about times where the Scriptures have become very real to us because we believe there's a tremendous amount of power in the Scriptures, and as they become more real to us, we can draw more heavily on that power and have it influence our lives better. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm excited for our guest today. This is a, a, a friend that I've known for a long time. He's a uh, he's done some great studies and is currently teaching seminary. I'll let him tell you a little bit more about himself, but we're with Josh Matson. Welcome, Josh. Thanks, Carrie. It's so great to be here with you, and uh, thank you for a wonderful podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Josh, and, and uh, what you've done and why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, so um, my journey really started off uh, as an undergraduate at BYU. I uh, had an opportunity to study in the Ancient Near Eastern Studies program there where I emphasized in Hebrew Bible, uh, which is uh, coming to be very handy this year with Come Follow Me and the curriculum of church study. Uh, I went from BYU to Trinity Western University uh, in Vancouver, British Columbia, where I did a master's degree uh, that focused in biblical studies, but with an emphasis in Dead Sea Scrolls research. Um, And then just recently finished a PhD at Florida State University uh, in religions of Western antiquity. Uh, where I wrote my dissertation on reception of various Old Testament books by Jewish communities uh, in the late Second Temple period. Uh, And so uh, kind of an academic journey that has gone this way and that, and uh, recently was hired as a full-time religious educator with seminaries and institutes, where uh, I spend my day teaching the Old Testament to high school students. Just good fun stuff, good fun stuff. And just so our, our audience knows that the late Second Temple period, this is basically the Savior's era, uh, So that, uh, if that's a phrase that people aren't familiar with. And why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, Trinity Western uh, and, and what kind of a, a place that is? So, Well, Trinity Western University is a, a great place uh, to study religion, especially um, the late Second Temple period. I had the opportunity uh, of learning from two of the giants in Dead Sea Scrolls research um, there in Marty Abeg and Peter Flint. Uh, they ran the Dead Sea Scrolls Institute, um, and a number of Latter-day Saint students uh, went from BYU to Trinity Western, where they got an opportunity to advance their education. Uh, for me, it was a formative time to be able to really learn how to study ancient manuscripts and ancient documents to really understand how individuals uh, viewed and preserved scripture uh, throughout the many centuries between the origination of scriptural texts and um, more modern practices of preserving scripture. Fantastic, fantastic. And I think many in our audience will hear the the name uh, Trinity in there and and wonder about its religious affiliations. Yeah, yeah. and Trinity. What can you tell us? Yeah, Trinity Western uh, University is a a private institution in uh, British Columbia that is sponsored by the Evangelical Free Church of Canada. Uh, so it's a, a, a private institution similar to, to BYU. Uh, they had their own community covenants that you had to sign that's very similar to the BYU Honor Code. Uh, the only thing that was a little bit problematic was when I was asked to teach a New Testament class and I had to sit down with the dean Uh, of the graduate studies and get a very severe talking to that I wouldn't be using it as an opportunity to teach uh, Mormonism. And so uh, (laughs) that was that was probably the only hiccup we had. Everything else was pretty good. But they said, hey, we want you to make sure you're teaching the New Testament and not um, your faith. And we agreed to that and had a great, wonderful experience there. 
Well, and actually teaching the New Testament is teaching your faith. But yeah, I know what they mean. So yeah. yeah. So, well, good. That's that's wonderful. Thank, thank you for that. Um, and I guess I might just mention uh, I, my sound quality might be a little bit different than normal today and so on. I'm not uh, at home. I'm in Egypt uh, doing my excavation right now. And uh, so it's uh, I think it's noon for Josh and it's 8 p.m. for me. Uh, but we can still get together via modern, uh, wonderful technology. So, Josh, why don't you tell us about uh, a time when something uh, happened that made the, uh, a scripture story or an element of the scriptures more real to you? Well, I, I love that. And, Terry, I just think you wanted to be on site. So you just wanted to bring us uh, live insight uh, right now and come follow me. We're studying about the exodus in Egypt, and you just wanted to give us a live update of, of where that was. So I, I, I'm quite yeah. jealous of the fact, even given the sound quality. <laughs> I, I am appreciating the fact that we're studying uh, the Israelites in Egypt while I'm in Egypt. I hope that uh, my uh, exit from the country is not quite as hard as theirs, but uh, yeah, it's kind of fun. Yeah. So um, to, to address your question of a time when the scriptures were, were real and, and to kind of align with what we're talking about and come follow me, um, I had a really unique opportunity uh, during uh, a break between my comprehensive exams and my dissertation at Florida State University. My family and I moved to Israel and we lived there for a year um, and had the opportunity to live up in the north in, in Haifa, where I was doing some research for my dissertation, but also just ha- taking advantage of the opportunity to be in the Holy Land um, for an entire calendar year. One of the things that I had really committed to do when we went there was to uh, observe holidays in the place or as near to the place as possible. Uh, And one of those holidays um, that we'll talk about today is is Passover. Uh, As some listeners may be aware uh, or may not, um, Passover, uh, while a major deal among Jewish communities today around the world, uh, it's probably an even bigger deal. Uh, to the Samaritan community that is located just um, a little bit to the south of the the peak of Mount Gerizim, uh, just outside of the modern-day city of Nablus uh, in uh, Palestine, uh, in the West Bank. And so this group of Samaritans to this day... It's kind of central uh, state of Israel and Palestine for uh, our audience that may not be super familiar, but it's kind of like right in the middle. Yeah, and so uh, on this mountaintop that the Samaritans revere is their sacred and holy site. Um, every year when Passover rolls around, they actually continue the practice of animal sacrifice uh, for the Passover. And so having known this from uh, other experiences and learning over time, uh, one of my goals while we were living in Israel was to find any way possible to be able to go and observe this. Uh, as a student of the Old Testament, I've always had that determination and that desire to want to see what an animal sacrifice may have looked like at the temple. And so this gave me an opportunity to see firsthand what an animal sacrifice would look like um, in a modern setting. Well, tell us about it. <laughs> well, uh, one of the things that I felt leading up to the sacrifice uh, was uh, we kind of get this image in our mind of of how gruesome and cruel or maybe even uncomfortable uh, a sacrifice would be to watch. Uh, and the anticipation was there. I showed up um, in this small town 
uh, just about four or five hours before the sacrifice actually took place and had the opportunity to talk with a lot of the Samaritans about why they still do it. Uh, why do Samaritans feel that it is legal uh, within the law to be able to uh, practice the sacrifice? And um, as we'll read in Exodus uh, or study later, um, in Exodus 12, when the Lord commands the sacrifice to take place, it says this, and I'll read from the King James, but this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it at a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by the ordinance forever. You shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and thy sons forever. And for the Samaritans, they said that because this injunction was given prior to uh, the building of a tabernacle, prior to the building of a temple, and in a foreign land, um, they say that this sacrifice was intended to be performed perpetually no matter where they were at. And so uh, it doesn't have to happen on Mount Gerizim. They do it there because that's their largest community. Um, but they firmly believe that God intended for this sacrifice to be performed annually uh, forever and that you don't need a temple for it. You don't need a tabernacle for it. You can perform that sacrifice wherever you're at. Yeah, and it's actually a fairly decent argument, isn't it? I mean, they, they, this took place when they had no temple and they had to do it that night. So it would seem that God didn't care whether they had a temple or tabernacle. And he emphasizes a few times the forever part of this. This is not a, a done deal. Uh, you, you you keep doing this. So yeah, that's, that's pretty convincing. Yeah, so I found that most interesting is that when you ask the Samaritans, why do you do it and Jewish communities don't? Um, that's what their argument is. And, and I agree with you. There's something pretty convincing about that, that this sacrifice, uh, this ordinance, this holy day transcended borders. Uh, it didn't matter where you were at. Uh, it didn't matter what materials you had available to you. But this sacrifice was to be performed in remembrance of the exodus of the Israelites or the children of Israel from Egypt. Yeah, keep going. No, so that was kind of the first lesson of why they do it. Uh, the second uh, lesson that I really was impressed by as I, I sat here uh, and looked. Uh, now, they've created stadium seating. Uh, this is an event that draws hundreds, uh, if not a couple of thousand people a year um, to their community. Uh, so they've got permanent seating um, that is there at the site to be able to watch these sacrifices. Uh, lucky enough for me, those conversations I had during the day, uh, one of the high priest's grandsons uh, invited me to be his guest uh, and be able to stand right uh, with the press. Uh, so he invited me in and said, you stand here, you can have your camera out, you can have your video camera out, and you'll be in the press area, uh, which is inside the gate and right behind the, the elders of the community. Uh, so not only did I have a view, but there was nobody in front of me. Uh, to watch or to, to be able to observe those sacrifices. Um, and so um, standing there and watching the anticipation of this ordinance um, was really interesting uh, as you could hear people building up to it. And maybe that buildup is something we don't emphasize a lot when we read Exodus. Uh, but uh, we read in the text that even a few days before is when the sacrificial lambs were to be chosen. Uh, and the people were to have that lamb set aside. In, in modern day Samaritan practice, they, they do follow that same practice four days before the sacrifice. They'll select um, the, the sacrificial animal uh, and then they keep it in their front yard. 
they keep it as almost as a member of the family to make sure nothing happens to it. It doesn't break any bones. It doesn't have any blemishes. Uh, and it was really interesting walking through the community and seeing these these goats taking over the front yards of all of these different homes and, and being able to say, this is our sacrifice. We are going to show it to the world. This is the sacrifice that we're going to offer in remembrance of our God delivering us. Um, and, and there's something really impressive of, of seeing people take that preparation for myself. I just thought, um, do I prepare for my ordinances uh, as a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Um, do I think four days ahead of time about partaking of the sacrament? Uh, do I think of where I'm at as a person uh, during those times? Uh, do I consciously think about this leading up or do I kind of rush in the last minute to be able to participate in the ordinance? But that preparation uh, was just so, um, it was so uh, invigorating. I'm, I'm trying to, motivating uh, to me to want to be a little more um direct and less casual with my worship when it comes to, to holy events. Yeah, as you say that, I, that's exactly the feeling I was having that, okay, well, there's something I can learn. You know, this concept we sometimes talk about of holy envy, the idea that you can learn something from what others do, uh, that in some ways they might do better than you, your own faith tradition, or at least you in your faith tradition. And that's one. I was also thinking of the excitement to sacrifice, right? We we're asked to sacrifice. In fact, I was just reading an article about how younger generation is not as apt to uh, be part of a religious community that asks them to make any kind of sacrifice. And uh, th that's the opposite of what you're talking about. We, we should be happy to be able to show the Lord that we want that we're willing to sacrifice on his behalf and and so on. And uh, I think the way you express that they're going about that should speak to us and help us maybe become better at that. Yeah. And you don't have my notes, Carrie, but you, you just really well transitioned into kind of this next point that I saw, which was that uh, as this excitement was building is it brought the community together. Um, and, and I saw this really interesting, uh, again, I'm, I'm kind of tying it back to the Exodus 12 text, uh, but in Exodus 12, four, it says, if a household be too little for a lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Um, and what was so fascinating to me as I stood there in the press area waiting and watching these families come in with their sacrificial animals, um, I, I will always remember these two families that walked in together. So you've got two families, very clear that they were, they were separate households. Uh, and their children, their, their older male children were walking in with the sacrificial animal. And as they they tied the animal to a, a post so that it wouldn't run away, although a few of them did get away. When you put children in charge of these things, it, it sometimes turns <laughs> into uh, an amusing situation, uh, not too unakin to some of our sacrament meetings with children, too. But uh, just throw goats in and you'll you'll see that. And uh, but they walked in, they tied their goat up. And then I saw the father of one family weep as he held the father of another family. And uh, this idea that, and I don't know what their family circumstances were. I don't know um, why they didn't have their own sacrifice. But one thing that we can read into that text from Exodus is that if a family is too small or doesn't have the means, that a neighbor is to look out for them so that they can still be protected by that. And I, I never thought about this until I was standing there. 
that maybe on that day when the Israelites are to offer their sacrifice and um, to, to coat the, the borders of their door with this, this blood, I wonder if there was somebody who had to go to a neighbor and say, hey, I don't have the means. Mm. I don't have the ability to do this for myself. Is there any way you can help us out? Uh, that's beautiful and interesting because I, I haven't really thought about this before. Or, but, you know, with most sacrifices, uh, it's set up, well, you know, the standard sacrifice might be a, a, a kid or something along those lines. But if you can't afford that, then it can be some doves. And if you can't afford that, it can be some meal, right, some, uh, some flour. Um, but not the Passover. The, the Passover has to be an unblemished lamb. There, there is no substitute. There's nothing else it can be. But that, I'd never stop to think, you know, that might exclude some people, but it's built into the Passover how to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, you, you take care of each other and you work with each other and to make sure that everyone can be part of this if they want to, which is uh, so great to teach us about any number of things, including the covenant. We want to make sure that everybody can be part of the covenant if they want to be, but, but in so many other ways. We just make sure we take care of people. Uh, whatever the Lord asks, we'll help each other rise to that sacrifice. Yeah, and, and, and tying into that article you were reading in reference just a minute ago, um, you know, we kind of have lost that idea in our modern society. Uh, we've lost that idea of how do we truly sacrifice. And uh, as members of the church, um, we do have uh, this built-in same uh, protection for others when we uh, enter into the covenant of baptism, we covenant to bear one another's burdens. We covenant yeah. to, to mourn with those that mourn uh, and stand in comfort with those who stand in need of comfort. Um, and it's the same kind of built-in protection. How do we as a community join together through the ordinances uh, to be able to build each other up? Uh, and that was on full display as I, as I watched these families come in. Uh, that's great. That's beautiful. And, and maybe just before we move on, just a little bit more on that topic. It's a little bit tangential, but yeah, thinking of this the uh, idea that there's a generation that's not as, as prone to sacrifice to be part of a church. And um, I, I, it makes me think of two things. One, uh, I can remember hearing, I think it was President Kimball, but it may have been another leader who, who said something about, you know, let's not sugarcoat that because in the end, it is the, the full commitment that is what people are actually hungering for. They may not realize it, but it's what they're actually hungering for. Um, and and then uh, it made me think, though, that uh, that can be such a blessing to us. I, I was thinking of another time where someone was saying to me, they were trying to talk about how people really shouldn't join our faith. And they said, well, you know, think about how much your religion asks of people. And it asks so much of people. And I thought, huh. I've never really thought of it as asking so much. I've just thought of it as giving so much, like it gives me so much. And so I want to put more into it because then I get more out of it. But I, I've never felt like uh, it was asking that much. But I, I think that's the beauty of this sacrifice. I mean, you think about you sacrifice a lamb and what you get is life. Well, that's really not asking very much when you, you think of it in those terms, right? That's a, that's a pretty, pretty small price to pay. Uh, but for some people, it may still be hard to pay it. And so it's built in. We'll make sure we can uh, help everyone pay it. So that's that's great stuff. So sorry for that. Yeah, yeah. Keep keep going on, Josh. No, and, and I like it. Um, and and I, I'll just build one more thing with 
with that is we were reminded in this October General Conference that the word sacrifice in our modern parlance, we think of that word as something that we're giving up. Uh, we're giving right. up something. Uh, but we were reminded multiple times that sacrifice is actually from the etymology to become sacred, to make sacred. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so to make the, holy the is another way of, of putting that. Yeah. And so what we're trying to do um, is that we're trying to make ourselves and the world we live in a holy or a sacred place. Um, and, and, and by giving of ourselves in that manner, um, that's ultimately what we give. And we can't uh, obtain that if we're holding anything back. Uh, if we're not, if, if we're saying, I'm only going to give part of myself, uh, we're not giving everything for that, that greater good. Um, I know in earlier episodes, you've talked about things like Zion, um, but that's really what Zion requires. Mm -hmm. uh, not just a willing heart, but the entirety of the heart. Um, and that's how you ensure that, um, there's no poor among you and that you're of one heart because you're completely committed to the cause. Uh, that's beautifully said. So I, I know I, I feel like I'm kind of like building to, to something bigger, but no, no, that's it just, yeah. If there's more in your story, tell us more of that story. And well, well, we'll let's get to the sacrifice the of the Passover a little. <laughs> Sorry. What? Yeah. I was just saying uh, what we can do is we can get to the sacrifice itself. Uh, we, you know, we've been talking yeah. for 20 minutes and we haven't even gotten to the sacrifice yet. So let's do it. But so, um, so as, as, as the families gathered and you had some observers gather for the sacrifice, um, everybody in the community was there in modern day estimates. There's about a thousand Samaritans um, that live in modern day Israel and Palestine. Um, and they all gather on Mount Gerizim. Now, most of them don't live there full time. Um, there's a there's a Samaritan community uh, just outside of Tel Aviv where many of the individuals live. But they all travel into uh, Mount Gerizim for this event. And uh, about a thousand of them are gathered together for this this experience. They all dress in white, uh, which uh, for us as Latter-day Saints, that's something that we can resonate with. Um, I found it hard and I was talking to one of the people that I was on the trip with. I said, you'd think they would chose a color that it would be a little easier to get the blood out of, but, yeah. uh, they choose to wear white. And so, uh, they're wearing white and, and, uh, getting ready to offer this sacrifice. Uh, I was really interested in how much of this was a family affair, uh, mm -hmm. fathers there with their sons. Uh, there was one father and son duo that was really close to where I was. Uh, the father was one of the skilled um, sacrificers. Uh, and so his, uh, his, his job was to move from each sacrificial animal and uh, do some of the more intricate carvings into the animal to ensure that uh, there was sufficient meat and also that there was no violation of, of the sacrificial laws. But he was right there with a son that couldn't have been older than three or four years old. And that three or four year old was following him everywhere he went. And he, his father was providing him with instruction of this is why I'm doing it. And this is what each aspect of this is. Uh, and that father was the one who performed a majority of the actual sacrifices. And so he the, the, there were about 66 uh, animals um, that they were they were sacrificing the day that I was there, and all 66 of them were lined up along a trough. Uh, and wow. this father was walking down the middle from each 
um, animal uh, ultimately performing the sacrifice. Uh, and so watching him teach his son and pass on these traditions uh, and say, no, this is for generation to generation. I know we already read those texts from Exodus 12, uh, but you're really passing this on. And he was passing on his skill and saying one day uh, this sacrificial knife, I, and I, I was trying to translate as fast as I could, uh, but he's saying this sacrificial knife will be yours one day. And I want you to be able to know how to use it. So please watch me carefully. Um, and so they offered it, but it was it was very much familial. And they, they, they performed the sacrifice and it was much more solemn and much more reverent than I ever imagined a sacrifice would be. Um, and so there's a reverence that was there. The sacrifice happened. One of the main elders of the community looked around to make sure each sacrifice had been performed. And then immediately everything turned into jubilation. Um, the, the blood from the sacrifices were, were taken by the fathers to each family member. Um, so the sacrifice happens and then you're almost like, well, what happened? Like uh, there were all these men here that were performing the sacrifice. And now all of a sudden they're gone because they had gone to find their families to um, place the blood of the sacrifice on their foreheads. Hmm. Um, and so they went from family member to family member to ensure that each and every family had a mark of that blood over their foreheads. Um, and uh, it was really uh, impactful to me to see these individuals say, I will first care for my family and make sure that my family receives of this ordinance um, and that they will be able to have that. Um, one thing that I wrote in my journal uh, as I was watching this, I said, fathers rushed to their wives and children to assure that their household was marked in the blood of their sacrifice. Particularly impressive to me was one father who rushed to his wife, marked her forehead, and embraced her in joy and tears. Hmm. And, and for cool. them, it was this symbolic nature. Um, we are saved for another year. Another year, the destroyer will pass by our home. Uh, and we will be delivered. Uh, the symbolism behind that is so fantastic, isn't it? This idea of helping each other. And, and we encounter that symbolism a little bit in, in the coming weeks when uh, Moses and the elders of Israel and Joshua uh, go up and make a sacrifice. And Moses puts some of the blood of the sacrifice on the altar, but some on the, the people who are participating in the sacrifice. But that symbolism of really partaking of the atoning blood of Christ uh, and how that uh, we want our families to experience that, and, and that allows us to have the destroying angel pass us by. Just so powerful, and I love that idea of the, the love and the joy that goes into sharing that with each other. Yeah, and and Carrie, I'm grateful that you, you've kind of brought us back. I was going to kind of use this as a summation, but uh, it's interesting when you think of how each of these points that we've kind of talked about today uh, point us back to the Savior. Uh, and how we have parallels uh, when we think about this idea of a sacrifice beyond borders. Uh, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter where you live. The, the power of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ is available to all mankind. Um, when we think about the sacrifice being marked well in advance, I think of 1 Peter 1.20, where the Savior himself was foreordained from the foundations of the world. There was, a, there was this preparation that was involved. Um, this idea of bringing people together, I, 
I, I think of some of the other Pauline literature, Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4, um, where the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is to join together the people uh, who have accepted him as their savior. Um, and then this idea of the sacrifice itself, I mean, Hebrews 9, the idea that all things uh, are possible through the savior because of his atoning blood. And that that blood is so essential. And in a, in a few months, uh, we'll talk about Isaiah's reference of, of blood being used to cleanse and purify. But um, it's fascinating just how, um, how much you can see the Savior's sacrifice when you watch a sacrifice like this. Uh, and it's right there. And it is uh, ultimately, as we, as we read in Moses 5, this is um, a... a, a, a sacrifice that is to point us forth uh, and make us think forward to what Jesus Christ was and has done for each of us. Oh, that's, that's beautiful stuff. Uh, just tremendous symbolism. And uh, I love the, you know, there are a couple more things you can add in in that story or the, the instructions given to them, of course, that uh, others can be part of it, but only if they uh, kind of go through the, uh, the, efforts to become part of the covenant people, right? You have to become part of the covenant if you're going to really partake of this sacrifice that can, has this atoning ability, this this saving or delivering ability. Uh, there's a tremendous symbolism in there. And then, of course, at least on that first one, they uh, they have to eat with their shoes on and standing up ready to go. As soon as the Lord says, it's time to be delivered, you've got to be ready. And I, I, I think too many of us would like to be delivered when uh, it's convenient and in, during a commercial, right? So uh, don't don't bother me while the show's on with this <laughs> delivering stuff. I just want it's convenient. Uh, yeah. But anyway, so much symbolism to learn from this story. Well, and I love that you kind of brought in that inviting nature of it. Um, while we were living in Israel, I remember there was one store in Jerusalem just outside of Katif Hanom, um that um, that sold tortilla chips and salsa <laughs> and i know that may sound like uh, kind of a, a petty thing but uh as you know having lived uh, in the middle east when you can sometimes find uh those delicacies that you love as a family that's that's one uh and i don't mean to, to make light of these things but i love the inviting nature but there was a, a supermarket in that supermarket in jerusalem where i would always get chips and salsa so whenever i went to jerusalem uh from haifa my wife's only instruction was make sure you bring chips and salsa home with you uh, and so I would make a little bit of a diverted tour over to the supermarket. And I remember right before Passover, uh, walking into the store, uh, the manager and I had become pretty good friends. Um, and I walked back to where the chips and salsa were and the entire aisle had been boarded up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and I turned to the manager and I asked him, I said, uh, Shmuel, I said, where's 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 my chips and salsa? My wife's not going to be happy if I, I don't come home with chips and salsa. He goes, no, 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 no. Passover. It has leaven. No. And and uh, and I said, well, 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 I'm I, I'm a Gentile. You know that like uh, I, I need my chips and salsa. Uh, and he says, you don't know the law, do you? <laughs> and so he actually pointed me back to the Exodus 12 text. Um, where it actually says that if you have a foreigner or a hired servant, they too should follow these these rituals. They they shouldn't eat and they should uh, of, of leaven. They should prepare themselves similarly. Um, and while in the moment I was kind of frustrated because I needed my chip and salsa fix, I loved just how inviting that was. Is he said no, like this is what we do, and we're inviting you to be a part of what we're doing. 
And, um, and so, uh, as you had said, you know, there's all these other elements, but then that invitation of come see, and I, and that's what I saw really well with the Samaritans was come be part of our community for the day. Yes, we know that you are not Samaritans, uh, but come and be part of this community and see us and be with us as we celebrate this, this very holy day. Uh, that's great stuff. Beautiful stuff. And, and that, Everything you've talked about has made the, the story become more real for me. So I, I appreciate that. Any any parting thoughts? No, I think uh, just just as a concluding thought, uh, Carrie, is that I, I loved having the opportunity to be able to do all of this. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't have to be there. Uh, I don't have to be on Mount Gerizim for a sacrifice. I don't have to be in Jerusalem for... Uh, for Passover or Easter or any of these these major events, uh, to really come to know that those things are real and that they actually happened. Um, one thing that I love about uh, this podcast, and as I've listened to it uh, over the last few months, uh, is I love sitting and reflecting and saying, how can I take what I've heard here uh, and make the scriptures real in my own life uh, and be able to really uh, encompass and bring into my life these elements. What can I, what's the little bit more that I can do uh, to not just view these as words on a page or stories in a book, uh, but that this is life and this is ultimately why we came here uh, to experience and understand and have our own experiences. And, uh, and you don't have to be in these places to have that, that type of experience uh, if you're actively and intentionally trying to seek them. Yeah, that's a perfect aim. Beautiful stuff. Thank you so much, Josh. I'm grateful for your willingness to share with us. And, and I know they've become more real for me, the scriptures have, and I hope that they have for others and that uh, that enables others to uh, just feel the power all the more in their life. And, and uh, you know, Passover is a fantastic time to think about uh, this story, but really any time of the year is a great time to think about uh, how the atoning blood of Christ can uh, deliver us from all that which uh, we can't deliver ourselves from. So uh, thank you for reminding us of that. And we'll invite our audience to uh, reflect on that, get into the scriptures. We read a little bit of Exodus 12, but we don't want this show to become a substitute for diving into the scriptures themselves. Instead, you go through it, tear the, that chapter apart yourself and uh, and use this as uh, just kind of maybe a catalyst to, and that's one of the themes of the show is that hopefully this is a catalyst towards you uh, studying the scriptures, which then hopefully is a catalyst towards you receiving uh, personal inspiration and revelation uh, as to how you can partake of that atoning sacrifice in your own life. And if you found this helpful, then uh, let other people know about it. Josh and I didn't get on uh, as much as we enjoy talking with each other. We didn't do this just so that only the two of us would be edified. We hope a lot of people would be edified. So let people know about it and, uh, and, make the scriptures more real for all of us thank you so much uh, josh and our audience and hope you all have a great day